0: Listen as I would read Luke 2, beginning at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And this is God's holy word. I'm sure you've often heard the sentiment stated that Christmas is for children. I suppose that idea comes from people who think the main purpose of Christmas is children opening presents and getting toys. But there's a viewpoint in the Bible that brings a different perspective. While, of course, one great child is the center of the entire nativity narrative of Matthew and Luke alike, there are a surprising number of main players in this drama who are of rather advanced age. Zechariah and Elizabeth, King Herod, the Magi, we don't know their ages, but they certainly weren't young men, and two people we consider today, Simeon and Anna. Anna senior citizens or, if you will, just plain old folks who have an essential role to play in the nativity of Christ as witnesses. That, after all, is what Luke is doing here. He's told us that he's gathering up the evidence for the life of Christ, and so he's bringing testimony from witnesses who can speak and who had spoken about him already. Now, you might want to contrast what these witnesses have to say, with another senior citizen who was living at that time in the same vicinity. That's Herod the Great. King Herod, half Jewish by blood, half Idumean, a man who was allowed to rule in a certain way by Rome as long as he didn't exceed certain bounds that Rome would hold him to. And here was a man, old at this time, After a lifetime of grasping for power, having killed several relatives and even children, his own children, who would have been rivals to himself, a man who puffed up himself and his reputation, who built monuments to himself, he was the one who called himself the great. Unlike Caesar Augustus, who was named that by the Roman Senate, Herod said, I'm the great one, and you'd better know it. And we know, of course, how that crotchety old tyrant went on a spree of killing babies in Bethlehem when the birth of Christ was made known to him. Certainly, at least in Herod as a contrast figure, we find out that not all senior citizens are nice people just because they've been around for a long time. I want to ask some questions of every Christian, and maybe I'm addressing today not so much the young folks, but those of you that have at least got two or three decades behind you, moving through adulthood, through middle age, I want to ask you, are you still fresh and vital in your walk and trust in Christ as your Lord? Are you still immersed in the Word of God and seeking to know that Word in a daily and weekly way and believing that there's more to be taught to you than you have learned yet? Are you engaged in some avenue of Christian service, whether within the organized church or not, to undertake, to humble yourself before other people and their needs? And if your honest answers to those questions are no, then I have to wonder where you're headed spiritually as you move towards the middle and later phases of your life. I hope you could learn a few things today from two folks who certainly did walk very faithfully in their expectations of Christ. Observe about them, first of all, how two senior Christians here in Luke 2 show us the grace of long-established worship habits. Now, we don't know Simeon's age exactly, and there's even some debate about Anna's. The New International Version takes a stance on an interpretive question when it says in verse 37 that Anna was 84 years of age, there's an issue to be decided there because what the Greek text could say as an alternative is that she had lived seven years with her husband and perhaps 84 more years, you see, after her widowhood, in which case was she a very young widow, she would be over 100 years of age. So it's, she's at least 84. She's an elderly woman and one who had now given these last times of her life to constant prayer and praise of God and seeking after him. Simeon here is called righteous and devout. Those are adjectives that describe someone who's not trusting in their own works, but rather is trusting the grace of God and in prayer, seeking to exalt the Lord in their lives. We talk today about workaholics who we say they Practically live at the office. Well, about Anna, at least it's basically said that she did practically live at the temple. She must have slept somewhere in a bed at night, but all her waking hours were apparently set to be among the people worshiping God and to observe where the prayers were being offered and to mingle with other people of faith who looked for the expectation of Israel and for Israel's. Messiah. And Simeon had even been given a special revelation, we're told here. God, by his Spirit, made this man to understand that he would not die until he literally saw Israel's Messiah. You have to wonder what it was like for Simeon to wake up in the morning and have that promise come back to him and think, could today be the day could this be the day that I will, I will be at God's house or I will be in the streets of Jerusalem and somehow God will make it known to me that here before me is the Messiah I have waited for? What a life of expectation that was. Now, all of us who are moving at least past young adulthood are starting to establish worship habits that will continue through our whole lives. I'm always interested to watch this process. With young children, the parents bring them, and we say, we're going to church. And they don't say, no, I'm not going. But then at some point, they get old enough to say, I don't want to go. Or maybe they go to college and find out that uh, Sunday morning at college is time to sleep. And to get up and head out for a worship service is going to take some real extra effort, and many young adults have a time in, in their early 20s when they get away from these habits, and they have to decide at some point, is worship a thing that is going to matter to me? Am I going to cling to these habits because they matter? You find that worship is not something you can merely dabble in. It's not something you can do as a, an occasional venture here and there, and it's going to bring meaning to your life. Worship needs to be worked into your life as a habit. Now, some people don't like to be told it should be a habit because they say, well, you mean I should just do it because everybody's doing it? No, I mean that you should discipline yourself and say, I need to be with the Lord, and I need to be with the Lord's people, and I'm going to worship Him best in a context of gathered worship where I'm going to be challenged and and taught and be able to sing and Interface my Christian life with those of others. It takes cultivation of personal time with God and corporate time to build these habits and to make them a priority in our lives so that we would begin to be in old age like Simeon and Anna for whom it was absolutely natural not to go out of obligation, but because they desired more than anything else to be worshiping the Lord. I might comment, I've been concerned recently, we heard something in a session meeting that concerned me from our Christian education folks who are looking at the attendance of our Sunday school. We have a very healthy Sunday school, by and large. If you don't know it, Sunday schools are dying all over America. As churches move away from the pattern of Sunday morning classes in many cases, many churches don't even make the attempt anymore, and others It is not a lively thing. We heard a report of something a little interesting that I think represents a turning in the last few years, here at Westminster at least, of the fact that they're saying, well, we have good solid numbers and many classes bulging. My wife uh, meets with up to 18 four-year-olds every Sunday morning. It boggles my mind as I think of that. But what we're being told is if we look at the attendance charts, there are many more children now who are there one Sunday a month, or maybe two Sundays a month. And it's not so much the steady pattern any longer of families who are there because this is the house of the Lord and the people of the Lord, and that's where we're going to be unless something really takes us away. I fear that perhaps we're teaching our children, perhaps that worship is something to be fitted in, around all the other things, the soccer games and the family activities and the sports events and the different things that are going on. I tremble for that a little bit, folks. Our children need to be taught that worship is a steady discipline, and its, its disciplined habit will stand by us later in life. You know, the most important things that we need to do are rarely convenient things. There are things that we need to take hold of and say, this I must do as foremost importance. Maturity in Christian faith comes through that kind of practice, just like an athlete. You get at the top of your skills. You may be the best athlete on the team. You may win the scholarship. You may be the all-star. You still have to practice. You have to keep your body in shape. You don't just sit back and say, I've arrived now. I don't have to do that anymore. We need long lifestyle habits of praising God, being in His Word daily, praying not just by ourselves, indeed pray by yourself, but pray with others. Seek the face of the Lord and make those things settled habits. Simeon and Anna certainly teach us that, if nothing else. But secondly, I see in these two folks another lesson. And the lesson, as I read it, says no retirement is possible from God's gifts and God's calling. Now, I'm not speaking against retirement. I'm not talking about a time in your economic life when you say, I'm done with nine to five. I'm able to step back and do something different, work part-time, or maybe not work at all anymore. That's another subject altogether. But where that becomes troublesome is when folks say, I'm retiring from my Christian vocation. I'm retiring from the time when I participate in teaching or, or serving or stepping out to sacrifice myself for the work of Christ. I would put before you what to some might be a novel idea and say that the way you earn your bread, whether it's as an engineer or a nurse or Physician or accountant or business owner, whatever that may be, is actually your avocation, your secondary calling. And you can retire from that someday. I hope you can. But you have a vocation before Christ, a calling to be his disciple. And Romans 11.29 has Paul's word in saying God's gift and God's calling are irrevocable, he does not recognize retirement from being a disciple of Jesus. Yes, there may be ways you have to scale down or, or do some things differently because of your health and your limits on your when you can drive or you don't drive at night anymore or whatever, but that doesn't mean retiring from the army of those who serve Jesus Christ. Psalm 92 says, beginning at verse 12, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree planted in the house of the Lord and they will still bear fruit in their old age. As I've told you, I'm still wrestling with this idea that old age is upon me but my body tells me it is and other people tell me it is. And so I've decided that that is something I have to think hard about, bearing fruit in old age. If I have By God's grace, another decade of full time ministry. I wish that I would. I'm going to make it count. I I tremble to see ministerial friends over the years, some of whom get into a a, a rut and they say, Well, I know how to go through the motions now, and and I've got enough sermons in the file. I don't have to work at it anymore. I just kind of go through the motions and I'll make it to retirement. God forbid that we should do that. I want to be spent for Christ. I want to bear fruit in my old age. God certainly doesn't give me any idea that there's coasting to be done in his kingdom and its work. I want to tell you about, I think I told the congregation about this quite a few years ago. A couple, a real-life couple, I knew them rather well, Joshua and Alice Sujimoto. They were friends in the church of my childhood, older than I. I, Actually, their children were closer to my age, and I actually had the privilege of leading one of their sons to Christ when I was a camp counselor. But Josh and Alice Sujimoto were Japanese-Americans, as you could expect from their name, actually born in Japan and moved to this country, believe in their early married life. And they experienced the internment camps in California when Japanese-Americans were put aside, not in jail, but in camps where the government was fearful, perhaps, that they'd be involved in espionage or something, and that we see today was a rather unfair thing, unjust thing, but it happened to them, and they weren't bitter about it. They came to New York State, where I grew up, and they owned a a small farm, and Josh actually had his agriculture degree from Cornell University. They built up this farm and a, a, a sort of a farm store out of it, like the kinds of garden stores we see here in Lancaster County. It was a good business. They, they did bonsai trees, if you know what those are. We once owned a bonsai. We didn't know how to take care of it, so it died. But uh, Josh gave me a bonsai tree, which I cherished for a time. And uh, these folks had a good life. And in their early 60s, they said, hey, the business is good. We're going to turn it over to the sons. Let's retire. But then they surprised our church in an amazing way. They said, we believe God is calling us to use our retirement to go to the mission field. Wow, you know, they were 63, 64 years old. That didn't usually happen. But then they surprised everyone even more when they said where they felt led to go. Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries of the third world, a country where the weather uh, deprives agriculture, the rice crop is constantly being flooded, and extremely poor people are constantly having problems. Josh was called by some folks who said, you can bring your skills and you can help teach farmers how to raise better rice crops and survive here and and be a witness for Christ along the way. So here were these folks, early 60s, for a decade to their mid-70s, They lived in Bangladesh. Now, when you listen to that, you say, wow, I admire people like that. Well, if we admire people like that, why are there so few of them? Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you have to go to Bangladesh. That would be extreme for most of us. But I am suggesting to you that that we have a growing edge in our lives of discipleship all the way to the end and believe that God's calling to be his disciple doesn't somehow shut off at age 65 or 70. I meet many seniors who glory in the past. They revel in it. They would say, oh, things were so much better in the good old days. The present day doesn't look too good to them, and the future looks absolutely awful. Well, that wasn't the viewpoint, you see, of Simeon or Anna. They were living in hope. They were believing that God yet had great work to do, and they expected to be part of it. And Simeon woke up daily saying, maybe today is the day that God's prophecy in my life will be fulfilled. Does he teach us to look at the future a little differently? Thirdly, this quick lesson. Learn this from these two senior saints, that mature Christians must actively seek out the rising younger generation. I'm sure some of you know the words of Psalm 71. It's often called the senior citizen's psalm. When the psalmist prayed this way, "'Lord, do not cast me away when I am old.'" Do not forsake me when my strength is almost gone. And later in the Psalm he said, Do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation and your might to all who are yet to come. That's a great prayer for anyone to pray late in life. Do you hear what it's saying? If if you're a parent, you're saying, Well, I've probably given the main influence I'm going to give on those children of mine. They're adults now. Their mold is cast. They're gone off. They're hopefully successful, or maybe they're still coming back to me for things. But my prime responsibility with them is, is done. So I'm setting my eyes on the generation after them, and I'm deciding that God can use me to declare his praise to that rising generation, the young people to come. How easy it is for seniors to write off the young people. Oh, look at them. They're so disgusting. All the metal stuff sticking out of their faces. All those tattoos. The music they listen to. Do you know there were people who thought about you exactly the same 50 years ago? Maybe not with metal stuff sticking out of your face. But they had the same attitude towards you. Could I suggest to you that there's a ministry for you? Our youth pastor, Troy DeBruin, would love to get phone calls from some of you. I I hope to hear that maybe he gets some as a result of my saying this in two services. And you call him and say, Troy, I'd like the name of just one young person, maybe two. And and give me a little bit that I can know about them, and I'm going to pray for those young people as they move through their high school years and all the challenges that they're facing. Or maybe some of our younger missionaries. We've just sent out new missionaries this year, some of them with very small children in difficult places, in closed cultures where they can't even talk about where they are. Could you find out about them and learn about them and make a covenant to pray for them and write to them and let them know that you're standing behind their ministry? We have a—this isn't a paid plug, believe me. Walt Mueller didn't give me any money or ask me to do this. We have a ministry in this denomination through Dr. Mueller and his Center for Parent-Youth Understanding that is absolutely extraordinary. It's looked to by people all over this country and in Canada and internationally as a resource for how to understand the confusing youth culture. I would love to encourage you. Many of you seniors use a computer— Put in CPYU, that's all you have to do, and you'll find the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. And learn about what's going on and what's being done in ministry to our young people. Learn to speak their language, learn to understand them. Many of them are your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. You need to understand them. They're people of value before God. Write letters to those grandchildren and nieces and nephews. You say, oh, come on, that's corny. My grandchildren don't want letters from me. Let me guarantee you something. You write at least once a year to each of your grandchildren. Uninvited, just say, hey, I want to let you know I love you, and I want to tell you how the most important thing in my life is knowing Jesus Christ. And that I'm praying that you will know him and you will love him and walk with him and value. you say, what a corny thing. They're not going to want to hear that. I'm going to guarantee you something. If you did that annually, when I have your funeral someday, if I would do that, there's going to be a grandchild who's going to stand up at that funeral in the eulogy and say, Grandpa wrote to me and told me that the most important thing in life was to know Jesus. They're going to remember. They're going to listen. You seniors need to do it. You don't have the privilege Simeon had to behold Jesus and hold the baby in your arms, but you can serve him. You can be his disciples. You can see that one generation tells the next of the works of the Lord. One more point quickly. In the fourth place, we see Simeon and Anna teaching us a mature Christian viewpoint on suffering. That's a strange thing that sneaks in here into Simeon's words in verses 34 and 35. And interesting, it says he addressed it to Mary. I would think with certainty that Luke had the, the reporting of this came to Luke from Mary. And she probably said, Why, that old man turned right towards me, and here's what he said. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and be a sign spoken against, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul, Mary. That's who reported these words to Luke. Simeon said, Look, God is doing a great thing in the world, but it's not going to come without suffering. This child is is going to reveal what's going on in hearts. They're either going to be for him or against him, and and some are going to turn away and, and not know him. And Mary, you, his mother, why, you're a blessed woman, but a sword is going to pierce your soul. Mary must have remembered that when she stood at the foot of the cross, you know, I've met seniors in many different capacities as a pastor now for decades, and I meet them, and, and you would think some who've been church members for years, they're going through cancer, they're going through loss, they've, they've just lost a spouse, and I'm praying with them or meeting with them, and, and they'll say, why me? Why me? Oh, pastor, why is God making me suffer like this? And I'll... Certainly, make an allowance for their grief, but sometimes I wonder: don't they have a better perspective on the way of the cross? Don't they understand that, of course, grief and sorrow comes to everybody, and we're not exempt from that? But then I meet with other wonderful seniors, some of whom, why you you'd think they'd be crushed. Pastor Eric Crichton is in our community. You know him as a pastor emeritus of Calvary Church. His wife just died. A little over a week ago, we went to her memorial service. Christmas Eve, Eric was here in our service. Beaming, strong handshake, praise the Lord for your ministry, Pastor. I thought, there's the senior saint who's got it together. He's looking in hope to his Savior. Suffering hasn't crushed him. He's just lost his life companion of more than 60 years. But he's rejoicing in Christ. He knows who he has believed in, and he knows that he is able to keep what has been committed to him against the final day. Knowing and loving Jesus Christ as your crucified, risen Lord makes the difference in your old age. You've got a platform to stand on. You've got a platform to on which you can suffer and see that God is at work and it's not some strange or weird thing that you're passing through. It's simply the way of the Savior. Many of you know that when I make a death known in our congregation, I will often quote the words from Revelation 14, verse 13, that says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord that they may rest from their labors and their works follow after them. I I want to say this sober thing. You say, boy, you're full of gloom today, but it's just the truth. I'm probably going to say those words about somebody who's sitting in this room next year. I know it was true last year. There were some people sitting in the room in the last Sunday of 2009, and I said those words about them in 2010. Someday, someone may say those words about you, and they'll say, and... His works follow after him. What works will those be? Will they be the works of service? The works of a steadfast testimony in old age? The works that still rejoice freshly in the joy of a Savior who's alive to you at 89 or 92, just as he was at 10 or 12 years old when you first called him your Lord? Will there be visible works of a faithful life accompanying your salvation? I pray that you are one who will be able to say what Simeon did. Sovereign Lord, let me go now. I'm ready. Take me home, Lord. That's what Simeon was saying. For you have fulfilled your promise. Dismiss your servant in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. May those be words you can say with great confidence and with all hope to the very end of life. May God bless you in the year 2011. Our Father, thank you for these folks who remained faithful to the end, who hoped when not many people around them were hoping, who looked for Christ when most people had forgotten that was even going to happen, who testified and showed the perspective of the cross, even in the witness that they bore. Keep us faithful, Lord. Keep us yearning forward and not living in the past that we might hope in the new things you are doing and in that great final event that is going to bring it all to a consummation. We say, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.